comments on verse 6. Jesus said, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. And uh, I believe Leroy mentioned in the Sunday school lesson that he doesn't like to refer to people or compare people to animals or something like that. But here Jesus is comparing a certain group of people to animals. And, and we know that Jesus was not a teacher of polished words. He, his words were usually simple. They were easy to understand. They were to the point. He said it just the way that it was. Unvarnished, unpolished truth. Jesus called the Pharisees whited sepulchers and he uh, and um, blind leaders of the blind and things like that. He referred to Herod at one time as that fox. And here he takes the liberty to label certain people as dogs and pigs. Animals with dirty habits. Um, animals that were unclean and contemptuous to the Jews in his day. And who, who is Jesus talking about here is the question that uh, comes to our mind. And, and I think that as we think about the, the uh, as we look at the, the rest of scriptures, we can quickly conclude that Jesus is not referring here to the general population of sinners and, and unbelievers. Because there's many, many scriptures that we could turn to that are clear that we are to be a light to the world. We are to go forth and tell, preach the gospel. We are to tell others. We're to be a witness of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus himself was a friend of uh, the publicans and sinners. And the message of the gospel is for those people. But I believe, I believe that Jesus is talking here to those who have heard the gospel and they have deliberately and decisively understood it. They have understood it and deliberately and decisively turned their backs to it and rejected it, even to the point of being contemptuous and of being um, blasphemous of the gospel. Jesus told his disciples later in Matthew when he sent them out, he said, if you come to a city or a house and those people refuse to hear you, he said, shake off the dust of your feet and leave that place. And uh, we know that Paul did that as well. And so Jesus said, cast not your pearls before the swine. And I'd like to think a little bit about the pearls. You know, that pearls are a, a treasure, a valuable thing, something of worth. And the gospel is a precious gift. It's, a, it's, it's something of tremendous value that has been given to us. Paul said, I think it's in uh, Corinthians, that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. It's, it's a treasure that has been given to us. And, and there's, there's kind of two aspects of that treasure. And the one is that, that we display it. And when we have something valuable, something that's worth something um, of physical value and worth, we, um, we like to show it to people and tell others about it and, and have them experience it and, and appreciate its value and worth. But there's another side of that, and that, that is that, that valuable things need to be guarded and kept and protected from those who would um, destroy them or plunder them and things like that. So there's, there is that aspect 
of the gospel that that it's a treasure it's it's something to be valued and guarded although i i will quickly say that that many times we as god's people err much more quickly on the side of of being too protective of guarding too much of being um too apt to be quiet when we should say something and so on so Jesus is not at all saying, and there we could look at the parable of the the, uh, the the Lord who gave the talents to his servants, and that one that one servant who went and buried his talent. Jesus is clearly teaching, condemning that kind of a an action of burying what has been given to us and not not um, manifesting it to the world around us, not using it to grow the kingdom of God. That's wrong. Jesus condemned that man for doing that. So we often err on the side of being too protective. And then I would also say that we should be careful whom we label as dogs and pigs and, and who we put into that box of, of not being worthy or not being um, able to receive the gospel because... And when we think about God, how that He sent His only begotten Son into the world for us, and, and it was not God taking a risk and sending His Son down for us? Did He not? Was that not in, you know, we could look at that as in a sense God casting His most precious treasure um, to the swines and the dogs. We were all that way. We were all capable of rejecting the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So there is that sense that that, that we are all in that box, and yet Jesus does teach that we, we can guard and protect that treasure here. So that's all that I'll say about that. Now, I'd like to um, look at verses 7 through 11, where Jesus gives us these insights into prayer and how we should pray. Jesus says here, first of all, I'd like to think about um, the persistence that comes through in this in Jesus' teaching here. Persistence in prayer. Some people interpret Jesus saying, ask, seek, and knock as different levels of intensity in prayer. I, I don't know. That, that may very well be a part of this interpretation. But this morning, I'm going to rather look at it as a, a matter of persistence, as keeping on. I, I like the phrase that Daniel used this morning down in uh, before church he's, he used the word the phrase laboring in prayer and and that's that's a a concept that comes through in the scriptures we're to pray without ceasing we're to continue in prayer uh, i want to look at the parable um, in luke chapter 11 turn with me to uh, to luke chapter 11 verse 5 Luke chapter 11, verse 5. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in his journey is come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, 
Yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needed. And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. And he continues on there and says almost word for word the same thing that Matthew does in chapter uh, 7 of Matthew. But here's this, this parable that Jesus gives of this man who gets this surprise or, or finds out that he's getting a surprise guest and he finds out that he has nothing to feed this man. And so he thinks about his friend who lives down the road and it's late, it's very late, it's midnight and he knows that this friend um, will have some bread for him or he, he supposes that he does. So he goes and he knocks on his door and he wakes him up and the man grants him his request. Now, I, I think one of the key words here in this to understanding this little parable is this word importunity in verse 8. Jesus says, Yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needed. Now, Jesus, uh, we usually think of the word importunity as persistence or perseverance. But if you really look at the word, it means more than that. It's stronger than that. Importunity, according to the English dictionary, it's, it's annoying persistence. It's begging to the point of being a bother. It's, uh, um, you know, being a pain. That's, that's what the connotation of this word is. And a more literal translation of this word, this Greek word, according to Strong's, would probably be the word impudent. Now, impudent means that, that we're shameless. It means not being ashamed, um, but rather coming with boldness. And, and when I think of that word as meaning that, that makes, that fits, to me, it fits so well with this little story because all of us, I can relate to the fact of, um, you know, being in need of something and I need to ask somebody of a favor or a request. And, and, you know, we, we just don't like to bother people. Um, we try to be careful with our things that we ask from each other so we for sure don't come through as being a pain or being a bother or um, those types of things. But this man, he, he, knew, he knew that going to this friend's house at midnight and pounding on his door and waking him up, he knew that it was very annoying. He knew that he was being a bother. But he laid that aside. He, he laid that shame aside. He was willing to lay it aside. And because of his desperation for food, he went and he did that. And he got what he asked for. He decided it doesn't matter. That, that's okay. He's going to go and get this food. He was bold and impudent enough to do it. I like the picture that God wants us to come to Him in that very same way. He wants us to lay aside our reservations, lay aside our shame, lay aside, um, you know, not at all thinking that we are bothering Him by coming to Him with our requests. Hebrews tells us that we are, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we, am, that we may obtain mercy and find help, find grace to help in time of need. God wants us to ask. He wants us to ask again. He wants us to seek and to knock. And, and He delights when His people come to Him. God loves, this is so clearly seen in the Old Testament, God loves when His people come to Him 
and acknowledge their total dependence on Him. We see that over and over again when God's people were up against a problem and they didn't know what to do and they didn't know where to go except to turn to God and cry out to Him. God was always right there to display His power and to show Himself strong. So God wants us not to be ashamed, but to come to Him with boldness. Then secondly, I'd like to think about the promise here that goes with this, the promise of an answer. Jesus says, He says, ask, seek, and knock. And these, these are not suggestions that He gives us. These are commands. He tells us to do these things. Ask, and you shall find. Um, knock, seek. But each one of these commands comes with a promise. Jesus said, and he, he repeats these promises twice. In verse um, verse 7, he says, Ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. And again, for everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. So naturally, the question that comes to our minds is, does this mean that we can pray for whatever we want to happen and God will make it happen? Does it mean that when we pray to God for something that we need and He doesn't give that, that we don't have enough faith? That there's something wrong with our faith? There's something that must happen within the heart of any person before he can truly pray to God or petition Him with a request. And, and I'd like for you to think about the verse in Hebrews 11, chap, chapter 11, verse 6, where the, writer, the Hebrew writer says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. I'd like to think about that a little bit of, of coming to God how that we must believe that He is. Before we pray, we must believe that He is. This is more than believing that God exists out there somewhere. But it's understanding who He is. You know, we have... As parents, we know that our children can be very short-sighted at times. They, they can become so preoccupied with one thing that they really want. They, they've just, they just have to have it. Um, one of their friends or their cousins have, has something and, and they, they just need to have one. And it fills their minds and it consumes them to the point where you know that that's all they think about almost and and they completely forget the big picture of life and and so on they need their parents to remind them of the implications and angles and nuances of things that they have missed because of this overwhelming desire that they have and i think it's amazing how that we can be as children so many times in our zeal to have our prayers answered, to have God meet our requests that we are so sure that we need, we forget that we are praying to the Almighty Sovereign of the skies, as the songwriter says, to the One who 
is in control of all of life, the one who has created all of life, the one who is all-powerful, who is, knows everything, who sees the picture completely. We forget who He is. I think it, sometimes we forget. See, before we can come to God, we must believe that He is and we must know who He is. We can forget that big picture. His perspective that He has. I find it in prayer in my own life that it's easy to focus on the omnipotence of God. You know, God can do anything. You can do anything, God. And, and this request that I'm bringing to you is, is a piece of cake. It's easy for you to do. It's, it says nothing to you, so I'm waiting for you to do it. And we, we, can, we can easily focus on God's omnipotence. But it's not so easy when we pray to focus on the sovereignty of God and to remember that God is the supreme ruler of all. And that He decrees, what He decrees will stand, will always stand. And that His will is never thwarted. And that His will is superior to my will. It's not easy to focus on His omniscience. That means that God has infinite knowledge. He knows everything about the past and the present and the future of every one of us here. That means that when I know in a situation that I, I just know that this is how it should be, this is what should come to pass, and I pray to God toward that end, it being aware of God's omniscience is being aware that God knows better than I do in that situation. So before we come to God, before we ask, before we seek, before we knock, we must believe that He is. We must understand who He is. I have a little side, a little note written here in, in my Bible and I, I don't remember when I wrote it in. It might have been when we studied this in Sunday school. But it says here, I wrote down supplication, not manipulation. There's a huge difference between those two words. A supplication is coming to God. It's, it's a humble, earnest entreaty. It's, it's coming to God in humility and contrition. And again, this, this has everything to do with recognizing who He is and who we are in His sight. Jesus gave that little parable or instance there in, in one of the Gospels where the two men went up to the temple to pray. We referred to this in Sunday school. And we sometimes, or I've already thought of the Pharisee there as being the man who prayed a proud prayer. And, and that phrase is, it really is an oxymoron. You know, there, there's nothing like a proud prayer. Just... The, that Pharisee was not making a supplication. He was not asking God. He was not coming to God in humility. He was lifting himself up in pride. That's what he was doing. And I know we, we looked at coming to God boldly and unashamed and leaving those reservations behind. And we need to do that. But we must also come with hearts that are contrary. We must come beseeching and not demanding. And I hope that any attitude of prayer 
that any attitude that we might have that prayer is a means of manipulating God into getting what we want, I hope that kind of an attitude is foreign to us. And if we really stop and think about what it about the, the, the idea of manipulating God, it is so completely absurd. It, it cannot be done. It's an impossibility. I believe that the sincere, humble prayer of faith moves God to act. But God is not manipulated by selfish desires. Prayer is not a magic wand that we can wave to get whatever we want. That's not what prayer is whenever we think we need something. That's not what Jesus is saying here. As mature children of God, our prayers should spring out of a foundation of a deep, settled faith. That's something that is in place. And I know that the new believer comes to God with the little bit of faith that he has. And that's all right. But as mature children of God, we should have a foundation of faith that, that, is, that we're coming off of when we come and when we pray and when we ask God things. And yes, this, this faith that we have, it believes. We believe that God can heal our sicknesses. We believe that God can give us food for tomorrow. We believe that God will keep us safe. We believe that God can meet any little physical need that we are in need of. But our faith needs to be deeper than that. Shouldn't our faith rest in who God is and not merely on what He can do for us? You know, one of the, one of the facts about God, one of the, the most fundamental and and the most blessed things about God, the most foundational things that we can believe about Him is that God is always good. He is always good. True faith believes that God is good even when He doesn't heal, even when death comes, even when there are children starving in other parts of the world. And there's a whole list of things that we could put in there that people put in there to accuse God of not being good. But God is always good. You may be in the middle of a severe trial. You may have prayed and prayed again. You may be asking and seeking and knocking and the trial is still there. Is God still good to you? I believe that's a foundational principle of prayer. And I, I love the story of the three Hebrew children. Um, somebody referred to them this morning already. They were there before Nebuchadnezzar and the music was sounding and they knew what they were expected to do. They had to bow to that idol. They stayed standing. And Nebuchadnezzar, he called them in. He said, I'm going to give you another chance. When you hear the music, you get one more chance to kneel down. If you don't kneel, there's these furnaces that are waiting for you. And they, they probably saw those furnaces and they were hot. And they said, you know, they, they didn't even say, yes, give us another chance. They said, no, no, don't even bother, King Nebuchadnezzar. We're not going to bow down. We don't need another chance. They said, 
We know that the God we serve is able to deliver us. They didn't stop there. They said, but if he doesn't, we're still going to trust him. We're still not going to bow down to your altar. If, if he chooses not to deliver us, we are still not going to bow down. They had a faith that was fixed on who God was. They, their faith was fixed on God. It was not only fixed on what He could do for them. Jesus goes on here in verses 9 through 11. He talks about fathers and children. And He uses this, this little illustration of a man who gives his son, if his son asks him bread, he says, you won't give him a stone, but he'll give him bread. Or if he asks for a fish, he'll give him a fish and not a serpent. And he says here that is, you know, if we as earthly fathers know how to give good gifts, good things to our children, then how much more do we think that God will be able to give good things to us who ask him? And I really like the way that the, the father-child relationship that Jesus uses to illustrate his relationship, God's relationship with us. And we see that in other places in the scriptures. In Hebrews, um, talks about chastisement, how the God chast um, brings trials into our lives. And, and there's not a father that wouldn't um, let his son experience hardships because he does it for his good and so on. But uh, as fathers, we love when our children come to us with their needs. You know, it might be something that they need fixed. It might be a question that they need an answer to. It might be a problem that they need solved. Whatever it might be. But we, we delight in our children as fathers. I think you all understand exactly what I'm talking about. We delight in God, come, in, in our children coming to us and, and asking us for help. There's something about our children being dependent on us that brings us a real sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. It's just the way that it was meant to be. It's natural and right for a father to want to and to be able to meet the needs of his children and to help them. Isn't it the same way with God? Yes, it is. He wants us to come to Him. He, he delights in us coming and asking. He loves when we look to Him to meet our needs. He loves when we are dependent on Him. He delights when we ask and seek and knock and we're persistent and we don't give up. And He delights to answer, even though it's not always the way we are expecting. And again, every good father loves to give his children good things. But there's another side of that. Every good father also keeps from giving his children everything that they ask for. As children of God, we have the privilege to ask Him for what we need. But that privilege should come with the understanding that our Father knows what we need. He knows better than we do the things that we need. There's, there's many times or there's times when my children think that they really need something. And or, or I should I should say it this way too. There's there's times when the things that my children think they really need and what I think they really need 
don't quite quite line up. They don't quite come together. And you know, that's just the way it is between us and God at times. And I think as, as children of God, as believers, as God's people, we should strive to see things from God's perspective and to ask um, with His perspective in mind. James talks about asking amiss, and, and we could turn to that and, and how that he talks about people asking so that they can consume things on their own lusts, for their own pleasure, for their own delight, for their own satisfaction. That's not how we are to come to God and ask. One of the key points in this, in this Scripture here, I believe, is that in verse 11, Jesus says, How much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask Him? God wants to give His children good things. God really wants to give His children good things. But you know, the problem comes when sometimes we think sometimes we think that is good things is not what God says is good things. Sometimes we miss what the good things really are. And we could turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is, 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 has been described as being the treasure vault of the Christian, of the believer. God has a vast storehouse of spiritual blessings. Perhaps He is waiting for us to ask for those things so that He can pour those things out in our lives. In Jesus' illustration here, He uses of the earthly gifts that He uses. He uses bread and fish. And I don't know if this is significant or not. I, I'm making a little something out of it. Maybe I shouldn't. But this bread and fish was common food to the Galileans. That's what it was. It was something they needed for life every day. The son is asking for nourishment and nutrition. He's not asking for a BB gun and a baseball bat. Things that were necessary for physical life. Now, boys, you can ask your dads for BB guns and baseball bats. That's all right. But I'm using this for an illustration. You know, sometimes, sometimes, maybe sometimes we come to God and we're asking for BB guns and baseball bats when we should be asking and praying for the riches that He wants to give us, that He really wants to give us from His spiritual treasure house. The things that we really need for our spiritual nourishment. Things that sustain us spiritually. Things that are eternal. And as I reflected on my own life and, and the way that I pray as I was studying for this message, now I had to come to the sobering conclusion that I believe many times that I pray the things that I think I need, the things that I think are pressing in my life, the things that I'm seeking God for, probably if I would ask God, if I would see it from His perspective, is probably not the thing that He would say that I really need. He would probably say that I need something like more patience or more grace to go through the trial that I might be going through. Or whatever it might be. But I think we need to try to align the things that we our needs with what we see as God needing for us. In conclusion, I'd just like to summarize briefly 
God is our Father. He wants us to come to Him. He wants us to ask and to seek and to knock. He delights when we are dependent on Him. He wants us to come boldly. He wants us to persist. But He wants us to come in humility and contrition. And perhaps we should not ask and seek and knock so much for answers as we should ask and seek and knock for God Himself, for the heart of God, to understand Him. We should strive to see His perspective and to align our will with His. I'd like to close with two verses from Colossians chapter 2. If I can find Colossians here, I'll read it. Here it is. Colossians chapter 2, verse 2. I'm kind of jumping in in the middle of the thought here. That their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. And here's the verse I really want. In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's quite a statement. In, in, whom all are, in whom are hid all, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God wants us to ask and to seek and to knock. And He has this vast storehouse of treasures and wisdom and knowledge that He wants us to ask and seek and knock and receive. He wants to give it to us but He wants us to ask. And we need to ask. And He delights in giving us those things. They're hidden there. It says they're hid in Him. So the casual seeker is not going to find them. The person who is living life for himself is not going to find them. It is that the one who is willing to seek and to search and to knock and to ask persistently and boldly 